Athletic. Right, Reds, Tony Evans here with Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. So, Liverpool head back to Brighton this weekend. Brewers FA Cup success on the cards for Klopp and his boys. And what's up with Mo Salah this season? Well, we'll have a talk about that and Liverpool's finances. I'm here with James Pearce and Andy Jones. But first, I want to know how you two are feeling about the Reds this week. Three words. <laughs> um, I'm going for Cup Revenge Mission. Uh, enjoyed Everton's week. <laughs> oh, cruel, cruel, cruel. <laughs> you know what? That's it. This is going to be all over their forums and the <laughs> wave of anger. With you know, they'll, they'll be angrier at you than they are at the board. <laughs> but yes, we all have. Yeah. Um, oh, for me, three words. Oh, bring on February. Um, <laughs> it just it gets the feeling that. I'm waiting for that moment like it was a couple of years ago when things begin to turn and you think, you know, they're starting to go in the right direction again. But that might never come. Who can tell? But anyway, you've worked on a piece, Andy, with Matt Slater, looking into the finances and the Model FSG operating, asking why they aren't spending big. Because when you look at the Deloitte Money League and see they've gone above Man United and they're in second, you say, well, they've clearly got the money to afford it. So... Tell us about this piece. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, um, yeah, as, as you say, the, the Deloitte Money League, sort of the tables came out, and which sort of basically highlights each club's uh, revenue in terms of broadcast, broadcast match day and commercial and sort of basically puts them all together and sort of ranks clubs on how much money they've brought in. And, and Liverpool's, Liverpool sat there this time, which was a jump um, up from seventh of the previous previous sort of year. And it was the first time they finished above Manchester United in sort of the 20, 26 years Deloitte have been been doing it. And basically it was it was an idea to explain or try and explain to Liverpool fans who, because you see that big number, which is the revenue, which was 700 million euros, basically, which, which is around just under 600 million. Or that's what Deloitte put it out, 600 million pounds. And, and basically try and explain where the money's gone. Because you, you see that and then you see where other clubs are, so your Arsenal's, your Chelsea's, for example, you've, you've obviously spent big in this window, in, you know, in the summer as well, and just try to explain where the money's gone and why, based based on FSG's sort of self-sustaining business model, which they've always had at the club, why Liverpool are, are still not in a position to go and splash loads and loads of money on on players. James, I mean, we've seen this about the money and the. Plenty of money the club's generating. We also see the to-do list in the window, <laughs> and there is plenty to do. And yet, there's the disconnect between the cash coming in and the spending. Yeah, and and I think I think that's why it felt like an important piece that that Andy and Matt have written because you know there's there's a lot of a lot of talk amongst the fan base, isn't there? About on the one hand, the the kind of you know, isn't this great? Look at those revenues going through the roof. You know, nearly six hundred million pound a year coming in. You know, record match day revenues. You know, the, the Champions League money that we talked about on the pod earlier on in the week, in terms of the difference that makes in terms of the broadcast revenues. And so people then they're scratching their heads when it's like, well, hang on a minute, why why are other clubs able to spend at a greater rate than than we are? And you know, essentially, a lot of that comes down to 
a desire to take risk. I think, you know, Klopp touched upon that himself at the back end of the summer window where he said, yeah, of course, there's times when I'd like to t- to gamble more. But, you know, they have always been relatively risk adverse in terms of when it comes to the transfer market. And if they can't get exactly who who they want, then certainly in recent years, the case has been that they've they've stuck to the original plan. You know, you think back to, you know, two years ago, the, the absolute clamour to bring in a centre-half, you know, and they ended up you know, bringing in Kabak and Ben Davis at the back end of the window because they didn't want to spend big. That's a mad thing, though, because that's where the risks are, because you bring players like that in, you bring players like Arthur Mello in, and it's a waste of wages and a waste of, a waste of time for everyone concerned. I mean, Andy, should they be speculating more to accumulate? Well, I think, and it almost sort of lends into to why probably they're looking for this investment and and they're looking to you know and and have explored sort of that option to set to sell because you say Chelsea, you've sort of just thrown a lot of money at it and tried to do it in a very clever way in terms of the, the financial fair play elements and, and those long contracts and and Arsenal, who sort of as well as sort of gambled in the last sort of. 18 months to two years and really backed Mikel Arteta and brought a lot of players in for a lot of money and, and are sort of reaping the rewards. And Liverpool are at that stage where, you know, you, you think back to that summer where they bring in Alisson, uh, Fabinho and Abby Keita. That was probably the that was the last sort of big net spend window, if you like, where they spent a lot of money and didn't really recoup much. And and it sort of leads that round to that. And it's it's whether FSG are you know, willing and in a position to be able to to basically bankroll that again, um, and that and that remains to be seen. If you know, if Jude Bellingham is is the target, and I know we banned his name, but I have to bring him up for yeah. <laughs> for this for this sort of answer. Um, you know that this is sort it of, will be bleeped out. It will be bleeped out. <laughs> this is sort of the, um, the the test, if you like, because he's going to cost so much money, and and there's so much more to do within the squad as well. So, as you say, it does make it difficult, and the issue. Somewhat with Liverpool is is while they've grown, you know, in this match day revenue, which is going to get bigger with the the Annie Road extension, and you know they've obviously invested in the infrastructure, the commercially growing uh, broadcast, obviously superb after the the successes and near successes of last season. But with success does become does come a, a very very uh, large wage bill. Deloitte was sort of projecting Liverpool's next wage bill to be about three hundred and sixty four million ish. When you take that away from the five hundred and ninety four million which, you know, was the revenue from the broadcast and stuff like that and the commercial and the match day. Suddenly you've not got loads of a lot more money to play with, if that makes sense. So and then and then you can sort of piece together those bits and pieces and, and the other side of it is, is Liverpool have sold really well and we discussed this in the last pod of they've been able to move players on for probably more than what you would probably value them in the market. But they're sort of running out of those players. That that's the issue. It gets to that point where you either have to you have to gamble and take the risks, as, as sort of Klopp has alluded to in the past, and James mentioned, or you get stuck in a bit of a rut where people will just keep outspending you. And when it comes to needing to properly refresh a, a, a squad, that makes it really difficult. James, it's not as simple to say this is the reason Fenway are getting out or looking to get out because of they can't compete in terms of financial spending because it's always been part of the plans at some point to move the club along. But right from the start, the thing they feared, I mean, I think it was John Henry's first press conference when they were talking about Manchester City, he said, we'll just get a shake of our own. And you go back to the, 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 the fear of the state-run clubs, the fear of 
spending by people they can't match. Chelsea as well, and now Newcastle, has, has really underpinned the whole strategy of Fenway Sports Group. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember first speaking to Tom Werner about it properly, you know, probably early 2011 and and him saying then about how you know one of the big attractions for them coming into Liverpool was there was all this talk about FFP and how these these rules were going to be like rigidly enforced and how for them it was like well hang on a minute you know so we've got like one of the world's most famous sporting institutions here that's fallen on really hard times there was absolute rock bottom the potential to build up those revenue streams with the global fan base was absolutely huge, and it was like, well, then, and then we re- reinvest all those revenues, and if everyone is having to play by the same rules, then you know we'll we'll be onto something here. And as it is, you know, of course, let's not forget there has been unbelievable success, thanks largely to to Klopp and I'd say to a lesser extent Michael Edwards as well. But of course, those FFP rules haven't been worth the paper they're written on. So I think that's certainly a part of it. And then on top of that, when you see you know the situation at Newcastle. So yeah, I think there's the state-run part of it, um, and then also you know you can't get away from the fact that we know that John W. Henry was one of the driving forces behind the Super League. He was one of the driving forces behind Project Big Picture, and you know those two ventures, both doomed, were were all about money and power, and he wanted more of both of them. And what he didn't want was he didn't want the jeopardy of what Liverpool are faced with now, which is the prospect of being outside the Champions League next season, because. He wants the certainty of you know that hundred million pound that they put in the in the coffers from that run to Paris last year. So yeah, when you mix all that together, and I think also the realization that where this, this team are at in their cycle, they do need a significant injection of funds this summer. You know, it's it's pretty clear they either to ensure that Liverpool stay competitive and competing for the biggest prizes. You know, you either sell or the club, or a chunk of the club, or you do something which you haven't done previously, which is dig deep in your own pocket and take risks in the way that we've seen some of their rivals do. Because, you know, at the moment, you know, FSG, you know, people always say to me, where's the money? You know, where, and, it, and you know, it's, let's not forget, the, the, the accounts are published every single year. There's nothing, you know, it's not like there's like vast amounts of sums being you know, kind of taken out and, you know, they don't take money out of the club, but nor do they put their own money in. And when you, know, when you look at that wage bill, you know, 62% of every, well, 62 pence and every pound that comes in goes straight out the, the door in terms of wages, which is a, a hefty chunk. And then when you throw into the mix, you know, the 80 million pound redevelopment at the Anfield Road End and the 50 million pound training grounds, you know, it's, it's, it's not too difficult to work out where, where most of the money goes. Yeah, and Andy, I think that's a really big point, especially for the FSG houses, is that they've not been bad owners. They've not taken money out. This is not Gillette and Hicks. They've actually run up fairly prudently. But for me, what they fail to do is upkeep. They fail to keep the turnover of players going from positions of strength. And then they put themselves in a situation where we've got a summer, like, I don't know, if you'd hark back to Manchester United the uh, when Ferguson left that summer, they'd won the league, but they really needed to spend $200 million. They had a team in decline. And Liverpool are very much in that situation, and we're not even going to win the league. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And that's why I think there is as much frustration at times towards FSG as, as there has been. It's because... When Liverpool were were at the top, and you know, literally, you know, seven months ago, even, but you know, further back when when they win the Champions League, and then sort of go on and, and sign Harvey Elliott and Adrian, and 
and Seth Vandenberg. And at the time, you then go on and win the league, and you go, well, you know, does, does it really matter that they've not that they've not strengthened? But when you look back and you, you sort of think of the work that needs to go into Liverpool's squad now, and the amount of of upheaval that there's, there's been, even in sort of in recent sort of times, and what what now needs to come, you, you sort of think, well, if they'd maybe just done one midfielder or something like that back then, you'd be like to think you're in a better position than you are now in terms of the amount of <laughs> amount of money that Liverpool are probably going to have to try and fork out in the summer, and and then it's it, as you say, it's it, it's sort of down to to whether FSG do that, but. When it comes down to it, and the way football and the football world is going in terms of these, you know, these these owners of of other top six clubs and and, and Newcastle joining joining the party as well, it's they appear a lot more happy, well, a lot more happy to 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 make that those gambles and and sort of put it on the line where FSG, you know, haven't got to that stage, and and maybe if Liverpool do miss out in the Champions League this season, it might be a bit of a wake up call of of them having to go right well. To save ourselves a little bit, we might have to go and, and do something that we we don't really really want to do to to make sure that Liverpool get back into that Champions League because what you don't want to do is end up with a club who consistently finishes outside the top four. James, come on then, cheer us all up. Tell us what's going to happen between now and next Tuesday that'll like have us all celebrating in the streets. <laughs> who are they going to sell? Who are they going to sign? <laughs> well, at, at the minute, it's it's not shaping up to be a. A massively exciting end to the window, but of course there's still time, and we've seen, we saw at the back end of last January that, that things can can move fast. We saw it at the start of at the start of this window with, with what happened with Cody Gagpo. So um, I think what we know from the setup at Liverpool is, if an opportunity emerges where you know suddenly a player that they didn't think was available in this window, they get the indicator that there is a deal that can be done. Or if an asking price, which is currently far too high in Liverpool's perspective, drops, which is, again has happened numerous times before, it certainly happened with with Diaz, that they'll move quickly and decisively and get something done. But yeah, clearly, I think if if, if there was anything that they felt that was that straightforward that they could do to to improve what they've got, that would have already happened. I think um, there's been a, a little bit of a shift, I think, in the stance in terms of outgoings because certainly when Virgil Van Dijk pulled his hamstring. The club stance was that, that that meant effectively that Nat Phillips needed to stay put as cover for the rest of the season. But I think, you know, with the passage of time and Reese Williams not really getting a game at Blackpool, he's I think he played seven he's played seventeen times in the championship. So he's he's had a decent run, but you know, it's been a lot of turmoil at Blackpool. You know, that's led to a bit of a shift in the club's position in terms of Reese Williams being recalled. And that that just opens the door now, I think, for Nat Phillips to go and it's just a case of what is the best deal on the table. I think Liverpool would do a permanent or a loan. You know, if there was a decent loan fee involved, they'd be open to that. Yeah, I think the feeling would be with Van Dijk not too far away from being fit again. And obviously, Canate is looking very good at the moment. Gomez enjoying a bit of a resurgence. You've got Matip, Reese Williams as as well. Of course, Billy Cometio came back from his loan in Austria. Although that's primarily, you know, just he's going to be playing, I think, mainly base to under 21 squad but yeah I'd expect Nat Phillips to to get a move but um at the minute nothing nothing seems imminent in terms of incomings well that's it my Twitter burner accounts are going to be blaming you for it <laughs> that's that's t- anyway this is walk on brought to you by the athletic I'm Adam Hurry, host of a unique football podcast, one of the top 20 football podcasts in Guatemala, a cult football podcast. No, actually... 
It's one of the most important football podcasts. Football Clichés, a product of nearly 20 years of obsessive research, is a podcast about the mundane and magical depths of the language of football, the curious and sometimes almost subliminal things that define the way we consume the modern game. At what age is a player eligible to roll back the years? When does a club's highly rated conveyor belt of talent turn into a fabled production line? How many types of goal-scoring header are there in the footballing vocabulary? Football Clichés doesn't just leave no stone unturned, it looks at every single stone and wonders what's the threshold for a stone to become a rock? but for football, obviously. Listen for your sins on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Imagine the scenario. A much-loved and inspirational leader has announced his intention to take a career break, and you need to find someone just as tactically astute and charismatic, but perhaps without the glasses and the teeth. Well, when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They've even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash walk. That's L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com slash walk. W-L-K to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The best word I can say but uh, will describe this was boom. It's Tony Evans here with James Pearce and Andy Jones with Walk On from The Athletic. Okay, we need to talk about Salah. Was on the outside, and Elliot's picked up the pieces here, and somehow it's gone wide from Salah. Elliot's so unselfish, and how has he missed it? He just hasn't been up to the level that we perhaps expected after the after the rest for the World Cup, but even for the whole season. His numbers aren't that bad, really. Seventeen goals in all competitions from through twenty nine games, and seven in the Champions League, and he's gone three games without a shot on target, and that's the worrying thing for me. Because you think, he's got this break, he's not going to the World Cup with Egypt, he's going to be fresh, he's going to be ready, he's going to be firing, and it's not happening. So on Wednesday, James, you join Mark Chapman and Duncan Alexander on the Athletic Football Podcast to discuss Salah's slump. And Duncan raised a really good point that after five incredible seasons, perhaps a slight drop-off is inevitable. I think we've kind of forgotten in the sort of Messi and Ronaldo era where players have been so consistent year on year that that traditionally footballers do have good and bad seasons. And at the start of last season, Salah was in incredible form, probably the best form he's ever had in the Premier League. And he was performing above his expected goals better than he ever had um, in his Premier League career. Now, he sort of came back from the the African Cup of Nations and, and didn't really rediscover that form. You know, there's possibly various reasons why that is the case. And it's kind of carried on this season in the Premier League as well. He's, he's once again sort of below his, his XG a rate that he's not really seen before in the Premier League. But I think, you know, he's such a good player. There's there's plenty of time and space for him to come back. But as we've also talked about, there's there's going to be team factors that influence this, not just, not just down to him. To be fair, I think that's a great point by Duncan. The changes in the front line are having an impact on Salah's form. Do you think so, James? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a whole host of factors behind his kind of the downturn in his output domestically. And I think, you know, a sense of perspective is important because when you look at the overall numbers this season, 
I think it's, he's got 17 goals in 29 games in all competitions, which you know, there's there's plenty of attacking players that would, would settle for that. Although, you know, those numbers are inflated by the fact that he, he got four against Rangers in the group stage of the, the Champions League. And yeah, to have, only have seven, seven Premier League goals at the halfway stage of the Premier League, I think it was kind of certainly deserved to be the focus of a of a piece with our with our data guys because you know it's less than half of what he had at the same stage last season it was 15 after 19 games in the premier league in 21 22 and yeah i think the chopping and changing up front hasn't helped you know you think back to just recent games when you know we've seen I think just before the world cup it was Firmino through the middle wasn't it then it was Nunes through the middle Two incredibly different number nines. You, you know, you've had Oxley Chamberlain on the left. You've had you know Harvey Elliott on the left. You've had Gagpo, you know, playing through the middle or the left. You know, obviously Gagpo as the number nine in the absence of Nunes. So also the upheaval in midfield. You know, they, you know, obviously we talk so often about the problems in midfield, but I just think without that solid base, without that cohesion, the supply lines to Salah just aren't the same. Trent Alexander Arnold and his. In different form is another factor because, you know, that right-hand side has been so strong for Liverpool. You only have to look at the numbers. What was it? A dozen Premier League assists for Trent last season, just one at the halfway point. And he's, I think when I was doing the piece, two things struck me was that one, Salah is seeing a lot less of the ball. I think, you know, he's averaging 39 touches per 90 minutes this season, which is like over 10 less a game than last season. Well down on the season before that as well. So he, he's a lot less involved and he's seeing a lot less of the ball in dangerous areas. But you also can't get away from the fact that he's also went, you know, he's, he's getting fewer chances, but he's also being less clinical than, than we've come to expect. And, and may, you know, I think, as Duncan said, maybe that is just the reality of you can't keep on performing at a crazy high level. And also, I think maybe psychology, you know, the psychology of it, when, when you're having to feed off scraps where you know, that you aren't going to get many chances because the team's misfiring to such an extent. Maybe you, maybe that does prey on your mind a bit, and maybe you try a bit too hard and snatch at chances rather than relax in the way that we have done, where we've seen him previously. So, um, and then I think the other thing to mention is the lack of penalties because I didn't know until I was doing this piece. Liverpool haven't had a penalty in 27 Premier League games going back to last April which is the longest wait of any team in the Premier League and when you think okay not of late but in general Liverpool spend a long you know a long time with the ball in dangerous positions that absolutely baffled me and and even that I just think when when you're a player that's clearly suffering a bit with a lack of belief at the minute just a couple of penalties just to just to have that feeling of the ball hit in the back of the net again I think would provide a lift but he hasn't even been able to to count on that I, I think someone should have a word with him, Salah, and say to him, come on, son, dive in the box, you know, in these difficult situations, because he's never done anything like that before. I think it's important he changes his game to be like more like Harry Kane. That's what I'd suggest. But, but I think, Andy, there's the other side of it, which, uh, for me, is, is really obvious. Everyone's worked out what we do. They flood our right. They block Trent from playing. They, you know, they, they double-team Salah, treble-team him at times. How do we how do we make a change from now? How do we break out of that tactical straitjacket and hurt the opposition? Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like whenever you watch Salad at the moment, that he's, every time he picks up the ball, it feels like he's got at least two or three players around him from the opposition and not much on uh, in, in way of support, whether that's been picking it up deep in, in deeper areas or even around the box. He, 
it feels like he's got to pull out a worldie to score a goal at times at the moment. And, you know, he has had, he has had chances, as James highlights in the piece, that, you know, you would think, you know, back him to put, him, put them away, really. But he's just not in that in that vein of form. But, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. It's, it's, it does feel like it's, it's Liverpool have been worked out a little bit. And, you know, you go back to when Klopp has at times gone to sort of that 4-2-3-1 and played played Moe's and nine. And I think at, at times this season there's been that that feeling of whether it's it's worth, you know, shifting him back into that role or maybe looking to do a bit of that. And when he, he scores those four goals against Rangers, he sort of comes on as that number nine, doesn't he? And, and I felt like a bit of a, ooh, is this, is this the way Liverpool should use him from now on? But then, you know, quickly it went back to the the, the 4-3-3 and he was back back out on the right. And, and it does feel like, you know, he's, he's well, and, and sort of the, the piece highlights, he's having less success in, in those type of areas, I think is sort of his, his dribbles and stuff are down as well and, you know, pay 90, which... But I think James sort of summarised it really, really well and I think the issue is, is he's not he's not having the, the same supply of the ball to be able to do different things and, and try different things and, you know, he just doesn't have the stability behind him and Liverpool don't, aren't dominating territory or it doesn't feel like it, they aren't dominating territory in the way that they have in the past where it was c- c- continuing to recycle a ball, opposition couldn't get out of their own half but at the moment, games feel a lot more stretched because because of the way teams have been able to play play through Liverpool and, and be able to build their own attacks. And, and I'm sure that, that hasn't helped. And within all that, it's building relationships with a load of new players, you know, in that form. Well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. Is it time for the disruptor to return? Darwin Nunes, Iman Salah, is he going to change the way defences are going to have to deal with Salah because he's so unpredictable? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Just, I mean, on the topic of... Salah, I've read a lot of comments from people saying he's been found out and he's now, you know, teams have, have you know, have kind of like worked out how to nullify that threat. I don't I don't really go along with that. I, I think the problem that Salah's had is apart from just Liverpool feeding the ball to him less often in less dangerous areas, is just the lack of other threat around him. And that's why I think the return of Nunes will help him. I actually thought before Nunes tweaked his hamstring the other week, there were some signs of a really good understanding starting to grow between them. You know, I can think of three or four, you know, moments when they've combined brilliantly to scythe defences apart. You know, you, you know how different could have that miserable night at Brentford have been if, um, you know, what a pass that was from Salah to put Nunes, Nunes in when he went around the goalie. And I think it was Ben Mee, wasn't it, who made the, the, the goal line block. And there's been a few other times when, you know, Nunes has turned provider for Salah as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that relationship starting to grow. And I just think at the minute, I, I, I think back to Brighton away a couple of weeks back. And, you know, the number of times when Salah was so isolated and, and he was the only player just asking any single questions of that Brighton back line. And, and so often he was hounded out by two, three, four Brighton players just swarming all over him. And I think that's quite easy for teams to do at the minute because there's not enough threat from other places. But I just think, yeah, I, I think Nunes gives Liverpool a bit more of an X factor. And and and, and I think, you know, just that, that pace and power and desire to burst in behind his intelligent movement as well will create space for Salah. I just hope, and I, you know, and I'm, as long as long as there's no issues between now and the weekend, I'm sure Nunes will start at Brighton. But I really hope he plays through the middle rather than I, I want. I want to see him and Salah connecting, and I think that's obviously a lot more difficult if one's one's wide left, one's wide right. I think I want to see Nunes through the middle because I think that's where he's most effective. I think that the Nunes the Nunes Salah partnership. I think it worked. It can work well. Left and right, when Bobby Firmino's the nine, 
because, you, you know, Firmino effectively becomes part of, of your midfield and then you've got Nunes and, and Salah pretty narrow. I think the Tottenham game is probably the best example of that where, you know, they were able to link up a couple of times and Salah probably should have had a couple more goals because, you know, there was that there was that movement both of them from, from the wings in, you know, into central positions. And I think when, when you've got Firmino and I know Gakpo, would, you know, likes to play central, you know, likes to drop deep and that type of thing, it, it might work in that. That situation, but naturally you want you want Nunes as a nine. But I think when you've got Firmino, I think you you do have the option to be able to use both and and still have that connection. Playing in the games is where you find those partnerships and, and where you find that proper connection and and getting used to each other's runs and stuff like that. So I think while I agree with James that you you prefer to see Nunes in a nine, I think having them out wide can work if you've got Bobby Firmino as a nine. But obviously we're waiting for him to to return to to full fitness. I think it's really important to remember that we've gone from one of the most, you know, consistent front threes, you know, regularly the best front three we knew what was. Klopp played them as often as he could, and certainly in all the big games, to a situation where we're shuffling the pack all the time, and there's no real clear best front three that we know are going to be there for the big game. So, so yeah, so it's, it's difficult days, but if anyone can get better and burst out of it, it's certainly Salah. You're listening to Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic. In towards Gerrard! Oh. Hello! Hello! Here we go! This is Walk On, brought to you by The Athletic, with me, Tony Evans, James Pearce, and Andy Jones. Well... Brighton versus Liverpool, the rematch. Uh, should we be dreading it, James? <laughs> um, no, no, I don't think we should be dreading it. I think, I think the mindset has to be it can't possibly be any worse than the last trip down there. That's what I've been. That's what I've been telling myself. And I think, I, I, I think it's, it'd be fascinating to see, you know, what kind of response there is from Liverpool because. It's very rare, isn't it, in football that you get the chance to go back and to the same venue to face the same opponent so soon after being humiliated, really, which is what Liverpool were on the day because the scoreline was bad enough, but the performance was actually much worse. The the scoreline flattered Liverpool on the day. And when you hear the manager, you know, who's been in in the game as as a coach for over two decades, describe it as the worst he's ever overseen. That, that's quite a quite a huge assessment. So you think surely personal pride comes into it because forget forget the quality side of things. You know the, the biggest thing on the day was that Liverpool lost pretty much every single battle they could have done, every challenge, second to everything. And and you just think surely that has to change on Sunday. And I think maybe the flip side as well. If you're Brighton and you've just absolutely walked all over Liverpool a couple of weeks before, is there a little bit of complacency possibly? Fascinating thing for me will be what he does midfield-wise because was last weekend's selection against Chelsea, was that just a bit of a, I don't know, maybe a, a shot across the bowels for a couple of senior players in terms of, you know, you need to buck your ideas up or this will be my midfield from now on? Or is it a sign of things to come? Is it a changing of the guard? Are we going to see him stick stick with Besetic and, and Cater in that midfield department? He's got some big decisions to make. Yeah, and... What will be fascinating is that tactically they murdered us last time, and how Klopp adapts to that. It's I don't think it's just personnel and it's just effort. It's there's a bit of shape, you know. He needs to refine the shape to deal with Brighton. Yeah, you do wonder how, how sort of 
pragmatic Liverpool might go. And, you know, you, you look back to the sort of, you know, that game against Chelsea where that first half they did sort of sit off and, and sort of not take any risks. And you wonder whether that, you know, that might be the plan again, um, like it, like it all over, um, just to sort of feel away into the game. Because I think what Liverpool don't want to do is, is sort of go there and be, you know, opened up immediately by Brighton in the first sort of 10, 15 minutes because we've seen what Brighton can do uh, to Liverpool in, in those sort of, you know, those early stages of games. Um, you know, you, you think back to the home game where, you know, they go two up and Liverpool can't kick, can't get a kick of the ball, to be honest. You know, they've got to do something different. And whether, you know, does he change does he change shape or something? I, I doubt it because I think once he gets set on a way of playing, which it looks like he's set on the 4-3-3, that's what he's going to stick with. But I think it will help that Liverpool will have an additional threat because I think what, what probably helped Brighton was they probably looked at Liverpool and, you know, sort of off the back of the, the Salah conversation we've just had. If you if you only feel that one player is a proper threat and you shut them down and you, you can be more aggressive, you can be more front foot and Brighton are anyway, just in, in the way they play. But, you know, you can have that, you know, extra step, you know, extra aggression, extra man pushing forward because you know that if you deal with this player... You're pretty much sorted. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how Liverpool and, and Klopp, you know, chooses that forward line and how how that impacts Brighton. Um, but yeah, he's got to do something different. He has to because <laughs> I don't think I'm bare sitting through another ninety minutes of what we watched the other week. That might be too much. <laughs> James, how important is the FA Cup this year? I mean. The, the obvious thing is to say it's the only chance of silverware. However, I was on the phone to my mate um, earlier on this week, and we were talking about um, something that's coming up in early May. And he said to me, "Oh, is that the um, is that the, uh, the the week of the Champions League semi-finals? I don't know. I'll have to check." And we got five minutes into the conversation before we went, "Oh, hang on, we've got to get past Real Madrid." <laughs> and I'm, you know, it's not the only chance of silverware, but maybe the best chance. Oh, it's definitely the best chance. Yeah, you know, I think. I mean, with the, it's funny. With the, I must admit, I was I was looking to to book a, some time off in the summer, and I must admit, I was I was looking this week. Week like when is the Champions League final? And can't can't take any chances because I've, I've had my fingers burnt there before. I remember booking a a family holiday to go and see a mate who lives in Singapore in 2018, and booked it in the January, thinking, well, there's not a cat and else chance that Liverpool get to Kiev, and then. End up and I've not spending about five hundred quid having to change flight times and going to from Kiev to Singapore via God knows else where else. So like Liverpool's European history does suggest you'd be a bit of a mug to completely write them off when you know you think back to two thousand and five and you know the idea that anyone in January two thousand and five would have been saying oh fancy us this season for for <laughs> you know going all the way and stuff is would you you'd have been you'd have been put in a straitjacket wouldn't you so. Yeah, when you take a step back and assess everything, you think, yeah, probably the, the, the best hope for silver out at the minute is the FA Cup. And I think also sometimes these games feel like they're kind of shoehorned in, you know, the FA Cup in January at a point where it's like, oh, God, you know, bigger fish to fry at the minute. You know, maybe a big game three days before or another big game three days after. But that's not the case with this tie, is it? You know, he's had a full week on the training ground. He's then got a full week before he goes to Wolves in the Premier League next weekend. So, yeah, there's, you know, the 11 who start at the Amex on Sunday afternoon will be the 11, you know, his best possible 11 based on what he's seen from training this week. There won't be anyone held back with an eye on anything else. 
I'll tell you what, you know I'm going to frame this on Twitter? James Pierce raps out warning, no excuses, Jäger, no excuses. That's, that's the way we're going to do it. But you know what, that, 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 this is Liverpool, it, we're playing Brighton, and yes, there was a bad result, but Liverpool, we shouldn't be worrying about Brighton. We have to, but we shouldn't be. And, and let's look at some of the great moments in the FA Cup to give us a boost going into it. Andy, what's your favourite moments, FA Cup moments? Um... Last well, last season was definitely up there, but it's got to be the, uh, the Gerrard final of two thousand and six, which was the first final that I went to. I would have been eight, I think, or ten and eight in a couple of months' time. Um, that was the first one that I went to with my dad, and uh, it's fair to say I'd pretty much given up. <laughs> and then just and then look, I remember looking up and uh, and then seeing Gerrard put that uh, what was it, 30, 30 yards, whatever, uh, into that bottom corner and. Gerard, he's got it! Oh, Steven Gerard! Just when he looked injured and out of it, has equalised for Liverpool. With 90 minutes gone, it's 3-3. In surely the best cup final of modern time. Just it's such a sensational goal, and he was the man for the for the big occasion, wasn't he? And and, and that is rightly. Rightly say, said that it was the Gerard final, um, and then even even after that, we still had the the the, the penalty drama and all that type of stuff. So yeah, that one's mine because it's you know the first final that I went to live in, in person. So it'll always sort of uh, feel very very special. That ball drops to anyone else in the game. West Ham win the cup. Just a, a brilliant moment. James, what's your favourite? But you know what? I've got a random one from a personal perspective. Um, it's it was an FA Cup fourth round tie, fifth of February nineteen ninety two, Bristol Rovers away. I, I grew up in in Bath in the southwest of England, and and I, I used to be a ball boy at Bath City, a non league football club. And you know the idea of Bath City and Liverpool, the two worlds ever colliding, just seemed you know I- impossible. It was like watching two different sports. Um, and then, yeah, as it as it happened, Bristol Rovers were ground sharing at, at Twerton Park at the time, and and they came out the hat together, and um, yeah, it was it, that was it was just a surreal one because I was used to watching games at Twerton Park in front of 300, 400 people, and then more than nine thousand fans packed the tiny Twerton Park Stadium. But as the teams ran on, it sounded as if the crowd could have been double that. I had to get my dad out of bed at three o'clock in the morning to join the queue for the ticket office. There was no online sales back in 1992. It was uh, joined the back of the queue at three o'clock in the morning. And it was, I'll tell you what, it was fresh as well, because that was about middle of January. I think those tickets went on sale. And um, we had, we actually waited in line for hours and hours and didn't get them. I must admit, there was a few tears shed that day. Um, but uh, yeah, I managed to subsequently get my hand on a ticket afterwards. So um, yeah, I was, uh, I was 14. 14 then, one all draw. Carl Saunders and Dean Saunders getting the goals and then Liverpool turned them over at Anfield. And I think, I think I'm right in saying a very young Steve McManaman, you know, came to the rescue for Liverpool that night. Oh, brilliant. That's brilliant memories. I mean, yeah, one of my favourite things about the FA Cup was getting drawn at places that you'd never normally go to. Well, me as a Liverpool fan would never normally go to. And, and, going to these smaller grounds. I remember York and fantastic stuff. But as my favourite memory of all has got to be the 1986 FA Cup final, which was, you know, arguably the greatest day in the club's history, winning the double, beating Everton. Played across the rush. That's another one. And that will make it safe for Liverpool. And that will mean without 
Just what ten days before, two weeks before, it looked like we wouldn't win anything, and then we won the double. It was you know, and considering it's a year after Heisel, and in many ways, the rehabilitation of football came because of the the way that final was played out, the behaviour in particular of the Everton supporters who'd lost, obviously was was something else. So uh, that's that's my favourite moment. But the other thing we should never forget is that. The moment the balance in the city changed between the football clubs was the 1965 FA Cup final when, you know, everyone always said Liverpool had never win the cup when they did the live appeared to flow, fly away. They didn't. And, but, but the only thing that did is Liverpool started to become the dominant side in the city, which of course they remain, uh, <laughs> is, was, ever shall be. Anyway, before we go, we're really keen for you, the listeners, to be involved here on the pod. You know, your feedback. So what we've done, we've set up a Facebook group to build a community amongst listeners and throw ideas about and have healthy community-driven debates. We'll take your questions, talking points and more and bring them onto the pod. You know, to get involved, just search Walk On Podcast on Facebook and join that's Walk On Podcast on Facebook, and we'll go from there. And so that's all from today from Walk On, your Liverpool podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks to James and Andy and you, the listeners. And we'll catch you next time when we're in the next round of the Cup. The Athletic. <laughs>